0: Hi everyone and welcome to For Fact's Sake, the ferrets podcast about misinformation and fact-checking. I am your host, Ali Bryan, and with me as always, the Archimedes of audio, Paul Dobson.
1: Using audio over and over again, is that like acceptable for those?
0: As long as they're different people, I think we're fine. Yeah,
1: no worries. Uh, I'm very well, Ali. Yep. Um, More importantly, how are you? Back after a week's holiday, hopefully fully refreshed.
0: Yeah, feeling good, feeling ready to fact check and uh, debunk misinformation, but also glad to have a week off after a significant amount of time was spent on our recent climate series, Scotland and the Climate Crisis. Do I give people a little bit of a, I don't know, precy of what we looked at and what we found out? Yeah, so Scotland and the Climate Crisis was a week
1: long. Series of fact checks about Scotland and how the climate crisis is impacting us, how we're mm. trying to cope with the climate crisis, how we're trying to reduce our impact on the climate crisis, and also just looking at sort of various claims, some of which were dubious and some of which were true, um, mm. about Scotland and the climate crisis.
0: Yep, and we also um, did a fair bit of explaining of how Scotland uh, and the Scottish Government was doing in achieving its climate goals if you want to sort of sum up lots more work to do is that fair i think i think i
1: think that's the uh, overall summary yes
0: this week on the podcast the climate chat continues you'll be surprised to learn that we couldn't cover the entirety of the climate crisis in one week we gave it a good shot though didn't we it turns out there's <laughs> still to say um so this week we have a special guest interview paul do you want to explain who that is and what they're going to be talking about
1: Yeah, so we're speaking to Professor Gabby Hagerl from the University of Edinburgh's Climate Change Institute. Uh, We had a wide ranging discussion just about the actual impacts of the climate crisis and a wee bit of chat about projections for the future and how it could impact us going forward.
0: We also have a Paul's Curiosity Corner for the first time in a while. Paul's back with some more curiosity.
1: Never stops. Yeah, never stops.
0: It's a curse. So what are we talking about this week?
1: Well we're going to stick with the environmental theme but it is actually something that's not related to climate change despite Mm. what people would have you believe and that is London's ultra low emission zone and the fallout from that.
0: Let's start with our interview with Gabby Hagerl.
1: Let's do it. Over the last week, uh, as we're recording this, the Ferret has been putting out a series of fact checks and other content about the climate crisis. Uh, so that's why we're having this discussion with you today, Gabby. Uh, so can you just tell us, um, just to reiterate a little bit about how the climate crisis has impacted the world so far?
2: So we have seen a lot of impacts already. We have seen some very severe heat waves in the recent period. We also can see that the sea ice is retreating um, we have seen that this impacts on, on biological systems. So for example, corals have been bleached multiple times in many regions. Um, we have seen um, heavy rainfall, um, in the, particularly also on the British Isles. Um, so we have seen a lot of um, the kind of events that we would um, expect to become more frequent and intense under climate change.
0: I suppose in the last few weeks, uh, the big kind of conversation has been around heat waves. Um, Obviously, we know that you should separate weather and climate a little bit, but is climate change a major cause of these extreme weather events?
2: Heat waves are in many ways the earliest um, indicator of what's happening other than global mean temperature, which is, of course, when we detect the climate change in data, global mean temperature was the first where we could see it, but it's it's a very abstract um, Concept. Whereas, if you have a um, if you have a weather system that is conducive to a heat wave um, under climate change, um, it will become hotter because it, the atmosphere is just warmer, and um, and so that the same heat wave is going to be as that much warmer, but also. Um we can get consequences of heat waves that are different from what they were in the past we, its as it's warmer, you lose more moisture, the vegetation loses more moisture, so you can dry out the vegetation in this very dry spring even my my, my lawn and the house was quite dry, so you get in some sense you get the same weather gets you uh, just a bit warmer, but it can make it more uncomfortable, particularly as you approach um increasingly high temperatures and then you can see consequences of the heat that you didn't use to see such as stronger drying um, fires we have seen in many regions and much more intense fires it's quite um, straightforward to compare temperatures between similar weather conditions um, between the past and now and for heat waves you can see quite a strong change in that
0: another thing we've seen loads of you mentioned wildfires a lot of wildfires are man-made in terms of it's somebody that you know, drops a cigarette butt or whatever, or has a, a bonfire or whatever. So could you tell me how that, because people do argue that, okay, that's just humans making errors rather than being linked to the climate crisis. Could you explain a little bit how those two things are connected?
2: So every individual fire is really complicated, as you say. It could yeah, have a, yeah. it could have, and in, in, in the UK, particularly, we have um, in disposable barbecues. as particular yeah. culprits here, and um, so you have a possibly a human incineration and human start of the fire. Um, but you also have to have conditions that are conducive to um, fire spreading, and among that is dry vegetation, which happens under hot conditions. Um, and then when you drill into individual fires, you can then get very complicated things, like you want really want a lot of vegetation that then gets dry. So basically a wet followed by a dry spell or something like that. Mm. But if you look globally or in large scales, you will see that um, as you have in more heat waves, in, uh, particularly in, in, in the Arctic, um, or more dry conditions, you just get more area burnt and um, more fires in both in regions where humans are a big factor in starting them and in regions where humans are not so much, such as the um, Siberian Arctic or um, S- S- Siberian high latitudes. So, um, so on broad swaths, you can, you could say that you get more fires as it becomes warmer. And that has been actually expected and even written about, um, for more than 10
0: years now. What specific weather events or climate events have you been able to link to climate change that are in the UK or in Scotland?
2: So there have been a few, quite a few studies for the UK. Um, One of the ones I use in my teaching, and that is a quite well-known one, is the 2015 Storm Desmond case, where we had a very, very serious flooding um, on on, so strong rainfall on saturated ground um, Mm. with with what... um, something that is really cool from space but not cool if it hits you which is an atmospheric river when you have a very strong um, um, atmospheric um, flow from the tropics that brings um, Warm, moist air from um, subtropics and tropics over the land, and then it rains um, and it can rain for a very intense period. And mm. so, um, the intensity of that particular storm has been linked to increase to a warmer and moister atmosphere, and that had huge consequences both on Northern England and Scotland. There has been a bit of studies of the 2018 heat wave in Scotland where people said this has already been hotter than it would have been, and we expect um, this kind of trend to continue. So we have had a few events that have been actually analyzed and published about. Mm. Um, but we have, I think generally we see um, that our winters are becoming, when it rains, it becomes quite wet. And we have, um, we are um, in danger of having more heavy rainfall and possibly more flooding. Um, and when the conditions are right for a heat wave, it becomes hotter. We've also seen the North Sea of um, to the east of scotland is has been anomalously hot or warm mm. recently which right, um, could yeah. impact marine life um, and could um, drive away the fish and give um, the seabirds um, problems and so so we've seen some things in Scotland, even in scotland even though it's not um, an area which we would expect the strongest and most dramatic impacts at first
0: i think sometimes what's interesting when you're trying to explain to people about these sort of uh trends or kind of anomalous heat or anomalous um, uh like rainfall and things like that is that quite often they'll say oh well last year there was this event or you know so it's not like a straight line so no i not example, no. We're talking about snowfall in, in our series and we we saw the sort of general decrease in snow cover in scotland but then you look at 2011 or 2018 and it's huge snowfall of one year yeah and i think sometimes when you're trying to communicate to people these things it's more difficult because you're st- Someone can point to, us, you know, a snow, a huge snowfall effect in 2018 mm-hmm. or 2011, and say, "Well, actually, you know, that's more snow than there was in 2000 or whatever."
2: Yes, yes, it's not a linear line. It's like just even if you sit, if you sit on the beach and watch the tide come in, not every wave will be coming in further than exactly, the last yeah. one, and they will still come yeah. in waves. And so it's um it's it's a process that's very meandering. Um, an interesting debate is to what extent we have a more um, we have changes in, in, in the um, weather systems so that we get maybe more co- um, more um, systems where we get easterly winds and cold um, conditions or a wavier jet stream as I a, as a just heard a colleague say um, one or two days ago on the radio. So it's that's, a, that's still a, a bit of a debate to what extent that is happening. It could mm. be that we get actually while we are warming and the heat waves are becoming more intense and while the exact same cold spell is not as cold as it used to be. There is a chance that we could also get a change in the in the frequency of of, of hot spells and cold spells. That is much harder to see. Um, mm-hmm. and there is a physical argument why we might see that um, because the contrast between the Arctic and the tropics diminishes a bit because the Arctic is warming so much, right. um, and mm-hmm. that um, and that contrast is directly linked to the strength of the jet stream. So, um, so there could be a physical argument that we get a less strong jet stream, less strong westerlies, and therefore more easterly excursions, but that's really something where the the debate is out. Mm. Overall, it's still the exact, so for example, the 2010 um, extreme snow winter would have been quite a bit colder if it had been earlier in the century. Somebody did a nice analysis looking at weather systems um, in the past and present and finding that on average um, over the uh, 20th century, um, such a system would have been colder than it is now.
1: Okay, it's interesting. So, yeah, so even though that was obviously a very extreme event, it could have been more extreme. In it the,
2: could have in been more extreme if we had, had right. less, oh, right. less CO2 in yeah. the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And similar okay. for the heat waves, it's exactly the other way around. And for the heat waves, then also comes come the um, mechanism that could um, make them um, stronger, such as if you evaporate more moisture and it becomes really dry, then you get all of a sudden the temperature shoots up, as, 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 as is also happening right, yeah. in the Mediterranean and has happened in these pacific
1: northwest heat waves and so on yeah so i think you allude a little bit there to the difficulty that scientists have in predicting the future when it comes to climate change because it's sort of contingent on so many factors you know political factors um and just sort of the uncertainty in terms of uh, climate itself so what level of projections can we make about how scotland's climate will change across the next century or what what different impacts could there be at different levels of warming? You asked
2: exactly the right question with the different levels of warming. Of course, the big decision yeah. is now, what level of warming will we get overall? Yeah. So, if we um, if we go for a high warming event, um, effect of very strong global mean warming, which will also make Scotland warmer, we will get even more heat waves. Um, whatever we do, the oceans will be slowly rising against our coasts. Scotland is in the um, has the slight advantage that we are still rebounding from the last ice age in places, so we are kind of working yes. against that. But particularly if we go for a strong warming scenario, the, the, the isostatic rebound will lose. <laughs> so we will eventually okay. have um, some some more um, coastal flooding. Um, we are expected to to, to see um, in, increasingly intense um, rainfall. When it once we have rainfall, it could become more intense. Um, So for Scotland itself, um, and and more heatwaves, for Scotland itself you could see these changes. Um, What I'm concerned about is um, also as we, um, particularly if we go for a stronger warming world, we'll also see huge impacts worldwide, particularly in the tropics, and um, that will eventually impact on food supply, on stability, on migration, and all these um, factors could really um, change um, the political um situation of the world and could make it a, a very unstable and very concerning environment. Um so it is um and that would hit um Scotland even if we are maybe not in a zone that gets the strongest and most dramatic climate impacts immediately.
0: There's obviously a few different climate denial arguments. One which is that climate change is not happening and one that climate change is happening but it's not human induced. How can you Prove the connection between human activity and the warming of the planet
2: so that's very much what my research has been all about so we have been mm. trying to expre- explain the observed um evolution of temperature or the the observed um climate data um, using all kinds of approaches with and without greenhouse gases and you cannot Mm -hmm. explain them without greenhouse gas increases whereas with greenhouse gas increases um, you get pretty much exactly what we observe now it depends a bit on the climate model if it's maybe a little bit stronger or weaker than observed but it's Mm -hmm. um, without it it's very difficult to explain how we would warm to that extent Um, since um, the the sun has not been increasing um, and we've observed it quite well over the last few decades um, and there is no other reason why we would have such a strong increase in temperatures. The increase in temperatures is highly unusual relative to the Earth's history and over the um, or long-term climate data, um, climate um, and carbon dioxide are closely linked both ways, which uh, has been mm-hmm. pointed out by some skeptics, of course, that the carbon dioxide also responds to climate fluctuations. And, climate, yeah. um, and, um, and yeah. so it's a, it's a closely tight dance, but we yeah. understand it quite well, and we can model it, and we can really only explain what we see now if we account for the greenhouse gases.
1: So welcome back to Paul's Curiosity Corner. It's been a few weeks, as we alluded to in the intro. This week, we're discussing something that's been prominent in the UK press over the last few weeks, I guess, uh, which is ultra low emission zones, specifically the one in London in the aftermath of the recent by-election there. So first of all, Ali, can you tell us what ULES is and why it's so controversial?
0: Yeah, so as you say, ULEZ stands for Ultra Low Emissions Zone. Uh, It's currently in place in London, and it's basically a fee that you get charged if you are a driver of one of the more polluting types of vehicle. It was first announced in 2015, Boris Johnson, when he was mayor of London, and it was then introduced in 2019 by by Sadiq Khan. Okay. Initially covering central London and has been expanded out into other areas of London since then. It costs £12.50 a day. So if you are the owner of a car driving in those areas who is not past the emissions standards, you'll pay £12.50 a day to drive in that area. Yeah, it's been controversial since it was put in place. Small business owners have questioned its impact on trade. They worried it would drive up costs. Um, some trade unions have also criticised the policy, saying that it penalises workers and disproportionately affects poor people and that people haven't been given enough support to change ve- to vehicles which meet the emission standard. In more recent years, this... ULEZ policy has also been sort of linked by climate skeptics and conspiracy theorists to like s- other schemes around the UK and also the 50-minute city conspiracy which we've covered in this podcast before Indeed. which is basically a conspiracy that uh, suggests that the concept of 50-minute cities which is basically the idea that a good city is a city where you can get all your basics within 50-minute walking or cycling distance rather than having to drive really far that has been taken on as a conspiracy theory by some people suggesting that it's part of a plan to sort of restrict people's liberties and sort of force them to live in these 15-minute neighborhoods and not travel between them which has no real evidence connected to it but it's part of a broader conspiracy movement over the last maybe three or four years that suggests that climate change policy and climate change is being used to cover by governments to limit people's liberty you also see it linked to things like the World and Economic Forum and the Great Reset, which are other things we've covered on this podcast before. And uh, go back to our other episodes if you want to hear us talk about that more.
1: Yeah, so I mean, you mentioned there that it's sort of been picked up on by climate skeptics um, in terms of conspiracy theories, but it's not really core climate policy, is it? It's no. So, what is it actually about?
0: Well, it's pretty simply about reducing pollution from cars in order to improve air quality uh, in areas. So urban areas um it's a thing we've we've um done work on at the fair about glasgow and other areas in scotland about air pollution and the lack of air qualities in certain cities and certain areas where cars are idling on roads a lot and it creates um, a situation which has significant negative impacts on people's health in those areas okay so
1: you mentioned before that this was first announced back in 2015 and Mm. introduced in 2019 so why is it just now that it's become such a hot button topic
0: it's been talked about a lot at the moment as i say partly because of the connection that i was talking about with um the um it being linked to climate policy and being linked to um 50 minute cities etc but also because they're planning to expand the area covered by the ulex to cover most of greater london so that means that instead of people who just drive out of in and out of the, the city of london as the center of london being charged it means that a lot more people in the greater London area will be charged for having cars that do not meet those emission standards. This has led to like quite a lot of protests and it also broke through as a policy battleground in the Uxbridge and South Ricelip by-election. That was the by-election where they were replacing Boris Johnson who resigned uh, after the Partygate report.
1: So there's been a lot of speculation in the press that the Tory success in that by-election campaigning largely on... Ulez uh, will lead to them scaling back a lot of aspects of their green agenda. So is there actually evidence that the Tories won the by-election because of the extension of Ulez?
0: Yeah, it's really difficult to tell on these things unless you get like a direct poll of what people in, in a specific area say about x y z or why they voted on certain issues. It's fair to say that the campaign itself was fought pretty heavily on this issue. The con- successful Tory candidate who won the seat made being against the Ulez expansion pretty much his essential point of his campaign so it's fair to say that it, it must have had some impact on how people voted okay you can't tell whether or not that's the reason they won the labor candidate also said that the um, extension of the ULES should be paused um, and there were also specific um anti ULES candidates that were um standing in the election and would have taken some votes away from the conservatives mm-hmm. you know. so it's it's really difficult to tell at this stage what exactly caused them to hold the seat certainly it's fair to say that there's a split in opinion on the uh, expansion of the ultra-low emission zones in London, polling's pretty mixed. I think, generally speaking, the support for uh, ULEZ is greater in the centre of London rather than in outer London, which is where this expansion is going to start impacting. Yeah, it's difficult to tell for sure whether or not it had the impact of tipping over the extra few hundred votes that would have got Labour to the winner. Otherwise.
1: Okay. So just to bring this back to a Scottish context, how similar are the plans for ULES to the low emissions zone that was recently introduced in Glasgow City Centre?
0: Similar but different. Low emissions zones have all been kind of connected together by some campaigners and some conspiracy theorists. The Glasgow L E Z or Low Emissions Zone basically if you're a car that doesn't meet the emission standards you're not really allowed to go into the area okay yeah, and yeah. if you do you'll get fined whereas the london system is quite similar to the congestion charge in london where you basically have to pay a fee to enter the area But you're allowed to enter the area but you have to pay a fee whereas in glasgow it's a lot more about stopping cars from going into the area so if you have a non-emissions um, adhering car you're not really supposed to go into the area at all unless you've got an exemption That's all we've got time for, for this episode of For Fact's Sake. Thanks so much to Gabby for coming on and uh, sharing her insights with us. And thanks so much to everyone for all the feedback we've got from the um, Scotland on the Climate Crisis series. We're glad that it seems to have helped some people. And yeah, we're not, this isn't the end of our fact checking coverage on climate. We're planning to do, you know, lots more stuff in the future and keep that focus going. Paul, if you want to get in touch with us any ideas, where should they go? What should they do?
1: Yeah, so we are on all the normal social medias. So the artist formerly known as Twitter, now known as X. We are at Ferret Scott. Uh, we're also on Facebook, just The Ferret. Um, and obviously, you can also visit our Ferret Underground Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are also on our community forum, community.theferret.scott. And our journalists and fact checkers are always hanging out there, ready to take inquiries, queries or whatever else you want to talk to us about
0: yep and don't forget we're on uh, facebook and instagram as well and on threads if that's a place which you hang out the um instagram twitter rival uh, believe i believe i forgot threads i know that's... that was all your work as well
1: <laughs> Ruth resident thread expert
0: yeah threader um <laughs> so yeah feel free to get in contact with us via all those channels or email us at factcheckattheferret.scot if you want to get in touch Thanks so much for listening. We will see you next time. Bye. Bye.